Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io and join today. Today, my guest is Anne Hyatt. Anne is a Silicon Valley veteran with 15 years of experience as the executive business partner for Jeff Bezos, founder and CEO of Amazon, and chief of staff for Eric Schmidt, CEO and executive chairman of Google. Anne left Google in 2018 after 12 years with the company and has since founded a consulting company with CEO-level clients across the globe, where she applies the lessons of innovation, ambition, growth at scale, and forward-thinking leadership that she learned at Amazon and Google to new businesses and the next generation of leaders. Anne empowers entrepreneurs and executives through practical suggestions of how to develop a corporate culture of relentless ambition and vision while pacing themselves for long-term success. Anne has a bachelor's degree in international studies from the University of Washington and began a PhD program in global and international studies at Berkeley before ultimately leaving the program to accept her role at Google. She now resides and works in Spain. Anne, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure to be here, JR. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. So I'm going to do this a little bit differently than the way I've been doing some of my recent podcasts where I've started with the current work that the person's doing. I think we have to start with your upbringing and your career journey because it's pretty foundational to everything else. So you grew up in a military family. What did that teach you watching your dad flying Air Force jets and living the military life? It did teach me a lot of foundational things that have really come to play in my career and seemingly unexpected ways. Yeah, I was born on MacDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida, and spent the first 10 years of my life as a military Air Force brat. And my next two sisters were born in Anchorage, Alaska, and we were kind of everywhere in between. My dad was, as you mentioned, a fighter pilot and flew the F-4 Phantom fighter jet when I was born and spent most of our career up in Alaska. This was during the dilettante period of the Cold War with Russia. It was a very interesting time for his military service. And that's a whole other podcast and so many interesting stories. But what it really taught me was, even though I'm very timid by nature, especially as a young girl, I was just naturally very shy and introverted. It really taught me to be self-sustaining, to make friends very quickly, to be adaptable to new environments, to rise to challenges. And I really saw that modeled by my mom as well. Basically, she was an Air Force widow for a lot of his career running the family solo. And that really taught me a lot about just learning a lot of things really, really fast. My mom had never been outside of Idaho before she married this Air Force guy finishing his pilot training. And she was really forced to learn very, very quickly and become adaptable and really the rock upon which our family was built. So all of those skills definitely came in handy during my very unexpected career. I'm an Air Force veteran. I did not fly. I did engineering work. And certainly Mm -hmm. the people I've talked to who grew up in military families all talk about how they had to learn to adapt because you were moving regularly. You had Mm -hmm. to learn how to 
pick up and be in a new environment and sometimes in a new country and make new friends and deal with a new school. And it does teach you to cope with change and to learn how to be adaptable. So you're echoing what I've heard from others. So true. I, in fact, I went to three elementary schools by the end of second grade. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So then your dad left the Air Force, your family moved to Redmond, Washington. So you were basically growing up having a firsthand view of the tech boom at Microsoft and other companies. How did that shape your early views of the business world? My parents had no idea the way in which they were setting me up for this uh, career trajectory. Yeah, they moved to Redmond, Washington. After my dad retired from the military, he went to law school and he got a job in Seattle, his first big job. And my parents moved to Redmond because they didn't want to live in the city. They both you know, were born and raised on farms in Idaho. So we bought a property where our neighbors had horses and we had lots of land and a huge garden, not expecting that literally less than five minutes from our front door was announced that same year, Microsoft headquarters in Redmond. Right. So yes, I grew up in junior high and high school. All my friends, their parents were executives at Microsoft. And I really watched the personal computing revolution happen literally right outside my front door. I wasn't interested in tech for a very long time. In fact, it wasn't until the end of my undergraduate studies that I even considered working in tech. But there's something interesting you pick up in the air, in the environment, the personalities of of the people around you, the energy of the city was very palpable around this tech pace, the kind of people that move there, the curiosities, the talents. I don't know, through osmosis, you really absorb a lot more than you realize. You say you weren't all that interested in tech and yet you had a teenage job working in tech. I did. My very first job at 16, I got, I think, literally two weeks after I got my driver's license. And it was working for two brothers who had just graduated from Harvard Business School, and they were a five-person startup. And I was hired as a receptionist, office manager, kind of wearing all the hats. I just was in charge of doing whatever needed to be done each day. But really, that was my initial insight into what it's like to found and run an early-stage startup. And I had no idea how much that was preparing me for my first big job after university. You know, Even doing probably what was a lot of relatively mundane work for them, you just get a sense of the atmosphere, the uncertainty, Mm -hmm. the ambiguity that comes with being in those situations. So So true. I'm sure it prepared you well. It really did. Yes. I mean, I was doing a lot of photocopying and answering phones and things that seemed unglamorous, but you don't realize being in an environment overhearing the brothers talk about what's working or what's not or closing sales. And you just, you get to know the business vocabulary. I was also exposed to like literature for the first time. I didn't even know that like business magazines existed, like Fortune and Fast Company. I think Fast Company was literally launched that same year that I joined. So those things were around the break room and I started flipping through and getting to know who are the journalists or the movers in the tech world and not expecting them to me to get to know them on a first name basis soon thereafter. Crazy that all that ended up playing out, which we're going to yeah. get to now. So you went to University of Washington. Mm-hmm. You had designs on being an academic in Scandinavian studies. And yep. <laughs> then you landed a job at Amazon working directly for Jeff Bezos. I know you get this question all the time, so I will apologize in advance for asking it, but I have to. How did you get the job with Jeff Bezos? It makes no sense. Honestly, I had no business having that job. The short version of it is I graduated in 2002 from undergrad and as you might remember, that was immediately after the dot-com bust. Seattle is a very tech-heavy city, so the entire economy had really disappeared overnight. I applied to like a hundred jobs and didn't get like even phone calls back for like unpaid internships. So I was feeling pretty desperate about it. And it was through a recommendation of the director of a program I was working on 
campus that I applied at all at Amazon. It took me nine months and three rounds of all-day interviews to get that job. But I could tell the longer version of the story. But the truth is the last interview I did was with Jeff Bezos himself. And I think he was just looking for something raw. He was looking for somebody who was ambitious, who was unintimidated by him, because even by then, I mean, this is the earliest stages of Amazon. He had been Time Magazine's person of the year in 1999. He was a bit of a local celebrity, not of the stature that he is now, but a lot of people were really intimidated by him. And I just wasn't. I talked to him like a normal person. I think he found that refreshing. And I was really, really excited about what he was building. So I got a seat on a rocket ship. Yeah, you did. And, and you know, I think sometimes people in that situation, they're looking for somebody who shows a particular spark, right? Yeah. And who shows upward potential, not somebody who just wants to be an admin and do a very narrow definition of the role. And clearly he saw that mm-hmm. and the broader team there. So I know you interviewed with a bunch of the senior people before yeah. you even got to that interview with Jeff. They obviously all saw that in you. So credit to you for landing the job. <laughs> Looking back, I'm like, that is the craziest thing. I mean, it's literally a sliding door moment. It changed the course of the rest of my life, getting that first job with him. I'm sure you learned many, many, many things while you were working there, but can you share just a few that 20 odd years later really stand out for you? I think if I had to pick just one, and it's very hard because the three years I sat next to Jeff, I literally was given the desk physically closest to him in the entire organization. I was at his side quite literally for like 15, 18 hours a day. So I absorbed a lot. He was my personal business school. He was my mentor. I was his apprentice. If I had to pick one thing, it was really about the people, how he hired, retained, and harnessed the power of the people around him. And when we were hiring my replacement, he rejected a lot of candidates. And I was very nervous because I was starting a PhD and I couldn't change the start date of grad school. And we didn't have somebody. I I had really planned on training someone for minimum three months before I left though we didn't have anyone. And I really went back to him and I said, look, would you reconsider these top three candidates? And he wouldn't even take the papers out of my hands. And he said, I am only going to hire someone that I have to hold back, not push forward. And I use that as my mantra whenever I'm hiring. And I've interviewed hundreds, if not thousands of candidates at both Amazon and Google and for my CEO clients now. And I use that as my bar today. And I think that's probably, you know, people are constantly like, why on earth would he hire someone like you with no experience? But I think that was it. His bar was he saw someone that he was going to have to hold back rather than waste his time pushing forward, inspiring, incentivizing, and encouraging. And he has a lot of systems in the way that he harnessed the intellect, the curiosity, the grit, and the passion of the people who work for him in ways that I now appreciate are very rare. Most executives do not approach their teams and their systems in the same aggressive way that he did. So if I had to pick only one of the many, many things I learned from him, it was really about how to utilize and attract the best world-class talent possible. Well, as I'm sure you've seen you know, in your time since, I mean, a lot of senior people, they hire people who are unthreatening to them because they have some level of insecurity. And and ultimately, Mm -hmm. he was hiring for people who are going to make him better, right? And make the team better. That story that you told in the book, when I was listening to it, really struck me, the idea of like hiring people who you have to hold back rather than push forward. And it is pretty rare. From my experience too, I think the percentage of people that I've seen out there who really have the guts Mm -hmm. to hire somebody who is going to challenge them, it's a minority of leaders in the scheme of things. 
It is, unfortunately, and it's such a shot in your own foot. There's an executive at Google who put it so well. His name is Jonathan Rosenberg, and he ran product in the first decade of Google. And Jonathan used to say that A people hire A people and B people hire C people. And it's exactly what you were just describing. They feel threatened by that. But the truth is people like Jeff, who's clearly an A person, knew the value of hiring A people around him. And I followed that when I hired my first team, when I eventually ended up working for Eric Schmidt, the CEO, and I was asked to redesign his entire office. I only hired people that I thought were better than me in very specific areas that would fill in Mm. for my weaknesses or experience gaps. And it can be intimidating because you're surrounded, if you do it well, you're at a table full of people who have expertise that far exceed yours, but then each person is really able to be their best self. So A people, you should hire A people. Definitely. All right. So fast forward a little bit, you start your PhD program, you Mm -hmm. head off to Berkeley, you (laughs) probably break Jeff's heart just at least a little bit. And then you get this persistent call from Google about coming out there and ultimately they convince you to. And and you go to work for Marissa Meyer, who mm-hmm. was not a CEO at that point, but became a CEO later. So what did you learn from your experiences in working with her? Again, that's a whole podcast episode in and of itself. But Marissa, again, was very, very good at talent recognition. In fact, she made a bet with her boss, Jonathan Rosen who I just mentioned, that she could train up internal leaders faster and better than he could hire external ones. So the two of them literally had a bet about hiring the next generation of leaders for the organization. And she, by both accounts, definitely won that bet. So I learned from Marissa, how do you spot talent in its infancy? How do you harness them? And how do you train up the next generation of leaders? And I'm talking like unicorn level leadership. We call them sunicorns. You're not yet there. You need a little bit more experience and exposure and fire testing. But she was an incredible identifier of early talent. And she would go to bat for you. If you weren't yet at the skill set, but she saw the opportunity, she would absolutely be there to champion, train, mentor. She just heavily invested in her team. And she also taught me to be unapologetic about my own personal ambitions. My very first interview with her, she told me that she was going to be CEO one day. And uh, she did. After working at Google for more than a decade, she was hired as employee number 20, the first female engineer at the entire organization. She was recruited to become the CEO of Yahoo for very, very good reasons and take on an enormous challenge there. So I learned many, many things from Marissa, but one was about being unapologetically ambitious and two, surrounding yourself with the best quality people. There's a theme here. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So then you ultimately became Eric Schmidt's chief of staff and you worked with Mm -hmm. him during his time as CEO and ultimately as chairman of the the board, right? Um, So how did the experience working with him build on your prior experience with Jeff and with Marissa? So I was recruited from Marissa's office specifically to work for him. I didn't fully appreciate that at the time why. I mean, everyone knew that I had worked for Jeff. So Eric had no question that I had been fire tested and I could handle the pace and the stress of being in a very, very fast paced you know, C-suite with all the global spotlights that we were under. But I think more than that, what I didn't know at the time was he knew that two and a half years later, he was going to transition from being CEO into executive chairman. And he was looking for someone to help him in that transition. So he brought me on board early to kind of learn his habits, get to that mind reading stage where I can kind of anticipate his questions and what he's going to like and what he's going to hate. And then when he transitioned out of being CEO, Larry Page, the co-founder, came in as CEO, we had to really design a role for him that had never existed before. A full-time executive chairman had never existed at Google before, and he'd never been a full-time executive chairman before. 
So our task was really to first decide what are the major responsibilities of this role? How are we going to measure if we're being successful? What's the impact we want to have? Because he told me very unapologetically that he wanted to 10x his output as CEO. It wasn't going to become semi-retirement, which at the time was kind of what the transition meant for most executives. He wanted to really blow the doors off of it. And so that's what I was tasked with doing. So at the time, the role of chief of staff did not yet exist anywhere outside of US military and politics. But I had seen it because we did a lot of policy work with lawmakers trying to educate them on emerging technologies and help them legislate to the best of their abilities for their constituents. So I was exposed a lot to the policy world and also to the this role of chief of staff. And I thought, ha, huh, that's kind of a lot of what I'm doing and a lot of what I would like to be doing. And so I set kind of that task for myself. It took me literally three years of making the case, working with HR to make that an official role. But I was the very first chief of staff ever at Google. And I created what is now the gold standard for the role, which is now pervasive across tech and beyond. Mm -hmm. So that was not a job that I just inherited. It was literally one that I invented first and foremost to support Eric Schmidt in the most powerful way possible. And second, as a career progression to really take what I had learned catapult it. I call it springboarding. I don't make any lateral moves. I like to springboard because that's what my executives do. And it was an opportunity to really meet what he needed me to be as his right hand in this new role of his. So you worked for three CEOs, ultimately. Mm -hmm. None of these were handed out, right? You you earned them all. So what is it that you brought to the table at a relatively young age to be able to be successful working for the three of them and a few of America's biggest corporate success stories over the last 25 years or so. I think I first have to acknowledge some serendipity here. Like, yes, I worked my tail off and there's a lot of things that made me successful, but it was also a lot of timing. I mean, the fact that I was in Seattle just after the dot-com bust. And the reason I think that's really important is because at the years and the point of growth that I joined both Amazon and Google, there was more opportunity to kind of... (laughs) break the mold of what's expected of you. For example, at Amazon, when I joined in 2002, that year they lost 95% of their value. Like 95% of the valuation of the company disappeared overnight. So it was all hands on deck. A lot of people were jumping ship. It gave me an incredible opportunity to raise my hand for stuff that was far outside my job description, certainly for somebody who had zero actual corporate experience. I was given the opportunity to do that because they were like, Every single person, SVPs included, were doing things every day they had no idea how to do because no one had ever done it before. So it was an environment where I could be successful and I could be given a green light on things that if I was joining Google today as a 22-year-old, those types of opportunities are not coming to you. So one, I have to acknowledge, I joined organizations when they were young enough that someone ambitious, bold enough, and someone who's willing to fail and learn really, really fast can be rewarded. So it was the right place, right time, and also a whole lot of effort in very, very long days. And I think if I had to pick a third quality, it was that I was very passion aligned with the work that they were doing. I was giving myself homework. I was reading books and articles, and I was just incredibly curious about what we were doing because I thought it was very, very important. Especially when I was at Google, I was there for 12 years. That's a very long time, especially in tech years. And I was there for 12 years because I felt like there was a direct match for what I wanted in return for my very, very hard work. I really believed in the mission of organizing the world's information and making it universally accessible and useful. And we did that in many different iterations, and that's what kept me there for so long. But then when I realized that my learnings had kind of met the ceiling, that was the time when I knew it was also time to move on. We'll come back now to your 
current work. <laughs> so you left Google in 2018, yeah. started a consulting business. Talk about the types of services that you provide and the types of clients that you work with. I started consulting very unintentionally. I'd love to say this was a grant plan of mine, but that's not how it worked. In fact, just last week was the six-year anniversary of me leaving Google, which is just such a crazy milestone. But while I was working for Eric Schmidt at Google, he had a personal VC fund called Innovation Endeavors, where he supported entrepreneurs working on important global problems, especially around climate change. And so when I left Google looking for my next challenge, several of those portfolio CEOs said, hey, while you're figuring out what you you want to do next? Could I bring you on board for this particular challenge I'm having or for this project? And before I knew it, I had a full consulting business with a waiting list, which is great privilege, but I was also figuring out a whole lot of stuff that I had no idea how to do while trying to be very useful to these CEOs. So now, yes, I focus on CEOs who are experiencing all the challenges that come with rapid scale and growth. I specialize in two of the four legs of the stool of any startup. So we have the legs of like funding and revenue, and then also the tech or the product. That's not what I specialize in. I speak those languages fluently, but I specialize in the other two legs, which are the people and the operational systems. Okay. And so the CEOs that I work with who are across four different continents are all in completely different areas. In fact, I don't take two CEOs in the same industry, so I don't have accidental conflict of interest. And more importantly to me is I never forget that I'm not there to give them answers. I'm just there to ask the right questions to accelerate them into finding the right answers for themselves. And so going into spaces I know nothing about like crypto or fintech or health tech or whatever prevents me from coming in and being like, here's how we did it at Amazon, you know, plug and play. It doesn't actually work that way, but I help them get to their own answers faster. And I also help them see around some of the blind corners that I've been around many, many times. And I can imagine that there's a lot that you can bring to bear given your experience. What are some of the things that you learned in your time at Amazon and Google that have been most beneficial to you as you started doing this consulting work? As I mentioned, I really focus on people and systems. So when you're rapidly growing, there's a lot of people who've been so instrumental in your garage days. These are people who believed in you before there was any proof point to to back them up. And when you have this rapid scale of growth, there's a moment in time where it's unreasonable to expect a human's growth curve to match that. And so we have this very uncomfortable moment where we need to hire people above those that have been so loyal to us and try and do so in a way that isn't demotivating or Mm -hmm. making them feel undervalued. So anticipating that before it happens, identifying what are the skill sets that are missing, how can this bringing in someone with more experience actually be an incredible growth opportunity for these people who've been very loyal to you. So that's a very common inflection point when some CEOs come seek me out of like, help me reshape this team without losing the morale or the culture that they've so carefully built. And the second are around those operational systems, especially within the C-suite. How do we build systems so we have the most effective use of executive time? Because that's the most expensive time in the organization. So that's everything from your senior staff meetings to your offsites to your board meetings. How are we gathering and organizing data? Do we have the right analytics so that the CEO gets the insights before anything breaks, where you can kind of see those early success indicators or early red flags that your strategy is or isn't working out the way you expected? So those are patterns that I've seen from Amazon and Google that kind of have these universal truths. Regardless of what industry you're in, there's particular systems that work that help you through these incredible growth influx that I've experienced at Amazon and Google that seem to be universal truths, regardless of what continent you're on or industry you're in. And you also wrote a book, which was (laughs) published, what, in 2021? Yes. Yeah. It's almost two years old now. So I know that was something that you'd wanted to do for a while. Why so? 
Well, yes and no. So yes, I wanted to write a book because plan A was to be a professor and an academic. And we all know academics are publisher parish. So publishing, I always thought would be a part of my life. But no, in that... So I started speaking at conferences very accidentally, which is a whole other story. But when I would get off stage, people would often say to me, oh my gosh, I hope you're writing this down. Like, I hope you're writing down these these stories or principles, the things you've learned. It's really, really helpful. And I just thought that was a nice thing you said to someone. I didn't take it seriously because in my mind, I thought, well, if someone wants to learn the best practices of Jeff Bezos or Amazon or Google or Eric Schmidt, like those books exist. But it took a very long time before I accepted that I had a perspective that actually wasn't represented anywhere else. And my opportunity as an author was to translate the best practices of these seemingly super performers for us normal people, to Mm. use my career and my experiences as a case study and as an example that anybody of ambition and drive can actually produce extraordinary results. You can engineer serendipity for yourself. So bet on yourself is my attempt to give this playbook that I've had the great privilege of learning from some of the greatest business minds in the world and translate that for us normal people so that anyone of ambition can make their greatest dreams come true as well. Which obviously, as we were talking about before we started recording, not something that you see covered a whole lot, how to be an exceptional individual contributor. Mm -hmm. And the book really aimed very well at that audience. And it's an audience that I think the vast majority of people who are out there in the work world are individual contributors and they need to feel that there's hope for them and that there's somebody who kind of gets where they're coming from. Oh, thank you. It means a lot to me that 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 felt successful as you were listening to it, because it really is something I feel very, very passionate about. In fact, some of the, in addition to my consulting, I also do offsites and leadership training events. And the most popular topic of this year has been a course I do on innovation for intrapreneurs. How do you as leaders or as individual contributors really use the core principles of entrepreneurship within a corporate organization? And that's when you get these really rising stars. This is when you can identify early talent or you as an individual contributor can create a path forward in ways that might otherwise feel very limited. I was just in an event in London this last weekend. I was talking to a corporate attorney about the book and about my career and stuff. And she was like, gosh, I wish I'd read that 20 years ago. Within the legal field, my dad and both of my brothers are lawyers. I can appreciate it feels very like you do this and then this. It feels very scripted. And she's like, actually, it's not. If you have ambition and you can prove your value in unique ways, it will be recognized. So I think there's a, even within some very, very structured or maybe traditional corporate environments, there's a lot of opportunity for entrepreneur behaviors to be rewarded. Definitely. I have a friend, Danny Morshe, who I went to school with, who wrote a book. He teaches entrepreneurship at Brown, wrote a book called Seesaw Scale. And his view, similar to yours, is that anybody can be an entrepreneur. You don't have to be in a startup company to be doing it. He's been doing certainly a lot of speaking. I was just talking to him this weekend on the back of his book with a very diverse group of organizations, including the military. He was talking about doing some work for a couple different branches of the military. And harnessing that latent talent in an organization is something you would think more companies would really want to do. And yet so much of corporate world, right? America or mm-hmm. otherwise is kind of focused on keeping people in their box. 100%. It's yeah. definitely about that. I see that a lot, especially with mid-level managers who haven't been mm-hmm. trained on how to harness that. It can't feel very threatening. Well, I saw this a lot during the pandemic that it's easier to manage a team that's sitting all in front of you and you're there calling out the orders and you're just like, follow me. But now we're seeing opportunities to really have 10x opportunities when you allow some 
of these more creative solutions or more experimentation within your organization. I've done a lot of work in Abu Dhabi with some organizations there that are trying to take a very entrepreneur approach to their government work. And it's been incredible, the results they're getting. In fact, academics call it the golden ratio. The golden ratio is like 70% is your core offering. This is the stuff that you're hired here. You know, you're earning your paycheck by doing these 70% core things. 20% should be innovative efforts, like using those core skills in new ways, using new technologies or seeing new opportunities for different offerings to your clients or customers. And then the 10% is what really terrifies traditional organizations, which is the transformational. That is scary because because the transformational often cannibalizes the 70 and the 20, the core and the innovative, but it's called the golden ratio for a reason because over the next decade or so, that 10% is what becomes your core. So if you're right. not investing in that in yourself personally as an individual contributor or as an organization, you miss the opportunity to really build the foundation you're going to need in the next coming years. Now with generative AI and this incredible revolution we're going through, that right. could not be more true. Absolutely. I want to turn to a different topic, which is chief of staff roles. You have a lot of experience in this space. <laughs> I do. You know, in different companies, you hear them called executive business partner, business manager, chief of staff, chief administrative officer, sometimes chief operating officer. They're not all the same, but there are some common threads. What's your take on the various roles? I'm very happy you asked this question because there is so much confusion around this. Every single one of those job titles you listed, yes, has overlap. The Venn diagram is heavy. There's this heavy overlap in all those just descriptions, but they are all different and distinct from each other. The challenge is that if you look at the job descriptions in the US compared to Europe, for example, wildly different, what we call those people. So each of those jobs are distinct and different, but there's a lot of confusion. So if I was to break it down, the way I look at it is you have executive business partners. Those are people who are very savvy. They've worked with C-suite leaders for a very long time, five, 10 years or so. They speak the language. They're very sophisticated. They understand the business models, but they do a lot of the day-to-day. They're yeah. the one who are translating this priority list of the executive into their day-to-day. How is that represented in their calendar, their logistics, where they're investing their time, their influence, et cetera? So that's an executive business partner. They're translating the vision, the mission into the day-to-day structure. So that would include logistics to executive time, agendas kind of thing. Then you move on to kind of a first level chief of staff. You're now inserting strategy into this for the first time. A chief of staff is somebody who can represent their executive in a room they're no longer in. The executive is able to delegate a lot of things to that person to be a first filter because they've learned the instincts. They know the questions the executive would be asking if she was in the room herself. So they're able to do that first pass. They are sophisticated enough to read briefing documents or proposals or put together agendas, taking all the data points coming in from all of their direct reports, and then prioritizing executive time to work on just what is most important, what needs to be in my opinion, executive time should be focused solely on what needs to be debated, what needs to be discussed and decided live in a room together. Everything else should be a dashboard or an update or a weather report on email, not executive time. So that person is making that level of decision on behalf of their executive. Then when we move beyond that to much more senior chiefs of staff, and this is where we get into a lot of overlap with COOs. For me, Mm -hmm. the distinction there is a chief of staff traditionally does not own a particular deliverable. They do not own a department. You become a COO, even though there's a lot of overlap in what a chief of staff does, the COO often is owning at least one vertical. They have people who are formally reporting to them. They're deciding their comp and they're doing their performance evaluations, whereas a chief of staff does not. A chief of staff needs to remain Switzerland, where they are the conduit through which every executive is much more effective, but that person does not have a skin in the game. 
I heard it best described to me by one of my clients, actually, as the chief of staff or the COO. They have one eye in a telescope, keeping an eye on that long-term moonshot vision, and one eye in a microscope, seeing how is that being implemented today and making sure that absolutely nothing gets off track. That is where I get really excited because I think that's a skill set that not many people have. And it's one that I just find wildly challenging and exciting. I love that kind of responsibility. So if I had to oversimplify what can be very confusing, that's how I would distinguish between those roles. Yeah. So you brought up one thing I wanted to ask you is what's table stakes in these kind of roles and what makes Mm -hmm. you a star? So sounds like one thing you would say makes you a star is the ability to kind of look through the telescope and look through the microscope. Yeah. What are the other things that you have to do well? And what are the other things that really set you apart? You have to be able to process an enormous amount of information in a very short amount of time. I was responsible for taking entire board books. We're talking like four-inch binders worth of information and getting that into a single paragraph. What is my recommendation? What do we need to decide in this meeting? What does success look like? Often I have a hallway's worth of time to brief my executive before they're in a room and have to be very, very effective. So that is a skill I honed over 15 years. That is an art. That's not something I could do on my first day, but I would say that's a core skill of of a chief of staff at a high level. The second thing, as I mentioned, Switzerland, it is very, very important to build up deep levels of trust with every person that you're partnering with that's internal and external to your organization. A very effective chief of staff needs to have an impeccable reputation within the organization as somebody who is fair, is smart, and makes the right decisions. But equally important, that reputation needs to extend outside of your organization with the maybe lawmakers or customers or whoever you're engaging with outside. You are also need that level of trust and sophistication. I remember once I dropped my business card as I was getting onto a plane with Eric and he picked up the card and gave it back to me. And he jokingly said, oh, I thought your business card would say, says no for a living and makes you feel good about it. And I just had stuck with me, even though that was forever ago, because I think that's the perfect encapsulation of what most of my job was about, is I did have to know what to say no to, because everything that came to us was a fair request. It was people really needing something because they were stuck. And my job was to decide which of those many requests actually needed his time, which is less than 1%. And how could I be most helpful to them by giving them alternative solutions to what was getting in their way? So I would say those are some of the core skills of being effective and being the right hand to a very high level executive. So you were in these roles for a long time. Some companies view them as rotational roles. I'm curious to get your perspective on which model you think is actually the better model. You've definitely hit a, a landmine <laughs> issue here. <laughs> like if we have any like executive business partners or chiefs of staff, they will have immediate visceral responses to this question. I am much more middle of the road in my response. I do think both models can work really, really well. For example, as I described at Google, Marissa had an accelerator program called APM program, Associate Product Managers, where she was using it as a two-year rotational program to discover, train up, and deploy the next great leaders of Google. Highly effective. I mean, world-class reputation still exists today, 25 years later. That was a program of two years where she would take the smartest engineering minds in the entire world, bring them in for two years, and every six months, they were forced to rotate. Forced to rotate to a completely different area of the organization. So at the end of the two years, they not only had a very diverse skill set, but a very, very diverse and deep network within the organization. And people who graduate from the APM program literally like invented and ran maps, invented and ran Gmail, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Things that are 
pervasive in our daily habits were invented and run by APM graduates. This also existed at Amazon. Jeff famously had a role that he called the shadow that he invented the year I joined Amazon in 2002. And the shadow's job, it was a one to one and a half year long rotational program where he identified a young talent. And that person's job was to be at his side 24-7. They were in every meeting, copied on every email, listened to every phone call on every flight, literally at his side at every waking hour. And they learned to think like he did, to anticipate what he would ask. And then at the end of that rotation, they went on to run something that was a big bet in the organization. Shadow number one is Andy Jassy. Andy Jassy was the shadow when I joined. And he, at the end of his year and a half rotation, went on to run AWS, which at the time seemed like an insane bet. The board was like, what are you doing? Why are you building servers? We are like, we're a commerce store. But now it's a multi-billion dollar subsidiary of Amazon. It's Jeff looks like a genius. Andy Jesse, your listeners will recognize that name because he was just one year ago named Jeff Bezos' successor as CEO of Amazon. So that's how long and deep he trains his executives. And actually, Andy was the model that I followed as a 22-year-old nobody in the C-suite. I watched how Andy approached his work, how he did his own homework, how he leaned into things he didn't understand. He was willing to ask the stupid question. He understood that sometimes in the room, his greatest contribution could be playing devil's advocate and poking holes in all of Jeff's favorite ideas. And so I modeled my contributions, the way I partnered with my executives and the way that Andy behaved. And that's honestly how I invented the chief of staff role at Google was based on the way Andy did. So all my fellow chiefs of staff out there are very upset that I've just (laughs) described all the pros of having it as a rotation. But you know that that's not what I did. What I did was I had very long relationships with my executives. With Jeff and with Marissa, it was three years. With Eric, it was nine years. But I really liked the long form depth work with them because I was able to contribute in ways that I probably couldn't have were I rotational. So I think there's pros and cons to each. I was able to get to a level with my executives that it appeared like I had a crystal ball. I knew what was going to happen in the future because I'd seen these patterns before. I got very, very good at identifying the patterns, seeing them in their infancy and being like, now is the time to attack. We've seen this. This was an incredible opportunity. Let's go. Or, ooh, this is a red flag. We've seen this before. Like, Let's not do that. That takes time. And you can't really do that in short amounts of time so that pattern recognition, that ability to have the longevity of relationships and levels of trust that take a long time to build up is a pro for having it not be just kind of a springboard into something else. So there's pros and cons to each. What I think each executive needs to do if we have CEOs listening now is be very, very thoughtful and purposeful in what is this person here to solve for me? And in answering that question, you'll know which of these models is the best fit. We could talk about that for hours, and I do with my CEO (laughs) clients. But I think that's the distinction is being very thoughtful about what is this person? What do I want this right-hand person to be solving for me? And that helps inform how you structure the role, their delegated responsibilities, their level of delegated authority, and what you want them to be doing on your behalf. You made some obviously some great points there. I think it also affects the time commitment that you have to put in, right? If you're putting something in a rotational program, you are developing them for some future role, right? Correct. With, With a stated timeline. And so that person and you as the senior leader have to work a lot harder at that learning process because there's a time limit. And Mm -hmm. it also affects who you're going to put into it, right? Your description of Jeff's shadow program. He, I'm sure, was thinking about people who he felt could be seriously successful line leaders at a senior level of the organization, not necessarily somebody who would be sort of in a staff role. You know, Mm -hmm. he was looking for that kind of talent when that program, it sounds like. 
Correct. That's the perfect distinction. He knew that investing that amount of time in Andy would pay dividends because Andy was on an accelerated track. He was just wildly smart, very, very different to Jeff, which I also think is important. He chose someone who personality-wise was received differently in a room that he was. So yeah, those are all things to consider. Like, There's a reason I wasn't the shadow at 22. There was a reason I was in the staff. I didn't have the instincts. I didn't know I could not have gone on to run AWS. So being very yeah. understanding of what is the trajectory of this person. And you're right, it is an enormous time commitment to train people up. I would say of even very sophisticated chiefs of staff, me having 20 plus years experience of executive partnership, it takes me minimum one year to really get up to speed. Because by then you've kind of seen everything once, you can start recognizing patterns. Year two, you can make systems improvements because you can use that data that you've gathered in the first year to make better decisions. In year three, you get to crystal ball. That's a lot of investment in a person. And I would say that's minimum. That's a very like high level person. If you have expectations that you can get somebody to crystal ball level within six months, which a lot of my CEOs are originally delusional to think is possible, you're going to be disappointed. So we have to be very realistic of what problems we're here to solve and then design a system and a role around that. Thinking about what you were just saying about the leaders that you worked with, you say that you're drawn to leaders with humility. You worked for three CEOs. CEOs are not normally known for being humble. What did you observe in your time working with them about how they balanced the audacity and how they thought about their firm's growth potential while also being humble? I really appreciate this question because I think you've highlighted a misunderstanding that is very pervasive. Probably the most commonly asked question I get is, what are the commonalities between these three world-changing CEOs that I've worked for? And people are always shocked that my number one quality is humility. Because when you think of Jeff Bezos, especially now like jacked space cowboy version of Jeff Bezos, humility right. is not the first word that comes to mind. However, I will fight to the death to say that that's the number one reason he was successful. So the confusion, the misunderstanding, I think, is that people think that humility cannot be paired with extreme confidence and 100%, like almost delusional belief in your idea before there's enough data to back you up. Jeff was never in question that he was going to be successful in creating the everything store. Never. Even when we lost 95% of our stock value, even when the board thought AWS was an insane distraction, even when they fought him on Prime because they thought it would bankrupt the company, he was confident in his vision. So supreme, almost delusional levels of confidence because he could do the math. He knew what the factors were that were controlled. He knew what the factors were that no one else had ever solved for, and he had a plan for solving those. Supreme confidence. However, I still make the case that he was successful because of humility, because of the way he went about proving himself. So as I mentioned, he designed an entire job, the shadow's job to be that devil's advocate, to poke holes in all his favorite ideas, to keep him very, very accountable, to point out when some of his bets weren't working. For example, Amazon Fire, their attempt at a phone, massive failure. So the shadow's job is to be on top of those, to be on top of failures. You cannot be a CEO who isn't humble and make that someone's full-time job is to be at your side 24-7 telling you what's not working. Um, so that I think is an example of humility. And there's a reason why the average tenure of his executives was more than 15 years. Most executives spent more than 15 years reporting directly to him. There's a reason why people stick around for that. I think it comes down to that humility. You are at that table for a reason. And yes, he will call you to task if you're not showing up as your whole self. If you phone something in or you weren't rigorous in your thought about something, you're going to know it because he demands that of you. He doesn't just tolerate people challenging him. He demands it. Jeff has a very famous saying that he started back in the early 2000s, which is called day one. 
He always wanted working at Amazon to feel like day one, rather than like now they have literally over 1 million employees. Every single person listening to this surely has put money in Jeff Bezos's pocket this week. Right? Like It's pervasive. But he wants even today to feel like day one, that we are still inventing the wheel. We cannot rest on our loyals. He wants to be challenged on a daily basis. And so for me, that is the two sides of the same coin, which is extreme confidence and extreme humility in the way you're going to get that seemingly unlikely result. Last I get question. fired up about it. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Last question, completely different topic. You have a bucket list. You've checked some things off like scuba diving and <laughs> going on an African safari, both of which are still on my list. What's I recommend next it. for you in terms of, of crossing more items off your bucket list? I do like to do things that scare me. Like I've been skydiving and I've done, you know, being around these crazy moonshot people, I have been ruined. Like I could never have a at a quote unquote normal job again. Like my adrenaline threshold is very high now. So yeah, it's a great question. Next for me is really working to solve. And the reason why I like going on podcasts is because what I'm looking to do next is really solve the one to many. I feel like this work experience, this apprenticeship of sorts that the universe has given me is also an incredible responsibility. I have been trained by some of the greatest minds in the world. And if the lessons they taught me just sat in my little head, it would be an incredible disservice. So I think the next challenge that I'm giving to myself is finding ways to get this into as many minds as possible, especially underrepresented entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs who might not otherwise self-identify as someone who could do something exceptional in the world. So I want to find her in her dorm room and inspire her to like take a chance and do something that no one looks like her or comes from where she comes from has ever done before. So I think my next challenge is to find a way to do one to many. My current idea I'm playing with is maybe doing some kind of documentary filmmaking format Hmm. where I kind of break down the history of these wild days of the founding of the internet and trying to glean the lessons, all the stuff we got wrong, all the things we got right, and pay that forward to the next generation of entrepreneurs and technologists so they don't have to reinvent the wheel. They can learn from our mistakes, from our best practices, and then really make the world very purposeful in the way we use technology going forward. You talk on your website and in your book about democratizing success. And that Mm -hmm. phrase really resonated with me. I mean, this for me, Pathwise is a side project in its fledgling early days. But the idea, really the genesis of it was to find a way to help more people be successful in their career because most people are not getting the sort of high touch leadership development programs that people in the senior levels of the company get. And yeah. Only 30% of people are engaged at work and, you know, they trot out whatever favorite mm-hmm. statistic you want. But I think you feel the same way from what I understand. It's just, it's horrible that people don't like their jobs or that they just are underwhelmed by their jobs. And you spend so much time, so much time working. How can you go through life that way? And so I've sort yeah. of set out on a mission to do something very similar, which is just to try and help as many people as possible kind of do a better job of managing their careers, starting with the fact that you got to own it for yourself. Oh, we are on the same mission here. That completely resonates with me. And I feel it does hurt me to my core when I hear people who don't enjoy their work. My motto, and I truly believe in this, is that your work should give as much to you as you give to it. And for me, that's a decidedly high bar. I am willing to outwork and outcare 
everyone around me. That's just the way I approach my work. And I think everyone deserves for their hard work to be returned. For me, it's about being very, very purposeful. What do I want in return so I can ask for it? What learning or expertise am I developing? What network am I being exposed to? What projects or possibilities am I getting myself one step closer to? And often it just comes down to having that conversation first with yourself so you can recognize opportunities and even in their glimmer of infancy as they're floating by and raise your hand for it. Second, so you can go to your manager and say, hey, here's a skill I'm trying to learn, or here's a network I'd like to be exposed to and say, this is why I would like to try X, Y, or Z. And then recognize where your organization is going. Is it aligned with where you're going? Not everyone has the privilege of working in organizations that are solving the world's problems they want to. So if you need to look outside your day-to-day, look for opportunities in your community to volunteer for those causes, be exposed to that type of leader. I really believe the thing that changed my life the most was working for leaders that I not only liked, but that I wanted to become like. And so that's what I want for more people. That makes a huge difference when you find yourself in that situation. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that you didn't say no to this request, (laughs) given that you apparently had a rep for that when you were working for Eric. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, this is an obvious overlap. I think we are on the same mission. And if I could contribute in a small way to the big ripple effect you're having, that is an easy ask for me. Well, I appreciate that. And certainly appreciate your time today. It's been a fun conversation and getting a little bit more color on some of the things that you talk about in your book and the work that you're doing right now. So thank you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. I really want to thank Anne for joining me today to discuss her very unique career journey, her current work, the chief of staff role, a smattering of other career and leadership topics. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and soon TikTok. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.